We are continuing in our journey through authority, headship, and family structure according to Moses. I am your author, Peter G. Rambo, and this is our third segment. We're actually dipping into the um, fourth and fifth uh, Torah portions, divisions of Scripture, or divisions of the five books of Moses, but certainly tying everything to the rest of Scripture. And so this one uh, is named Vayera, and it is from Genesis chapter 18, verse 1 through 22, 24, um, is our first segment. <clears throat> our portion has a number of interesting intersections with our focal topic. While headship and patriarchy is not a major subject in this portion, it is a su surprisingly strong thread that we can easily follow through this portion. In Breshit, Genesis 1, 1 through 6, 8, you will recall that we discussed God's order of headship and authority. The very direct verses that we cited from 1 Corinthians 11, 3, or, or 11, included verse 3, which says, But I want you to understand that Messiah is the head of every man, and man is the head of a woman, and God is the head of Messiah. Later in our series, we will study Numbers 30 and see that a man has authority to nullify a vow to Yah that has been made by any woman under his headship. And Yah honors that nullification because the man has headship. In other words, Yah does not circumvent his own instituted authority structure. Notice how he addresses Abraham in regard to Sarah and then... When Sarah laughs, he again addresses Abraham to mildly rebuke. Only when Sarah says something in her heart does Yah address her. So Genesis 17, verses 9 and following. Then they said to him, Where is Sarah your wife? <clears throat> and he said, There, in the tent. He said, I will surely return to you at this time next year, and behold, Sarah your wife will have a son. And Sarah was listening at the tent door which was behind him. Now Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in age. Sarah was past childbearing. Sarah laughed to herself, saying, After I have become old, shall I have pleasure, my Lord, also being old? And Yahweh said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh, saying, Shall I indeed bear a child when I am old? Is anything too difficult for Yahweh? At the appointed time I will return to you, at this time next year, and Sarah will have a son. Sarah denied it, however, saying, I did not laugh, for she was afraid. And he said, No, but you did laugh. Then the men rose up from there and looked down towards Sodom, and Abraham was walking with them to send them off. An aspect of God's respect for his own authority structure is seeing in his initial address of is seen in his initial address of Abraham. Like God speaking to Adam first in the garden, God addresses Abraham regarding Sarah's laugh. The depths of seriousness Yah has for the authority structure he instituted is lost on most of Christendom. This is something that must be recaptured before Israel can be restored. God designed patriarchy and established a patriarchal family, then kingdom, through Abraham. So in Genesis 18, verses 17 and following, Yahweh said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do, since Abraham will surely become a great and mighty nation, and in him all the nations of the earth will be blessed? 
for I have chosen him so that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of Yahweh by doing righteousness and justice so that Yahweh may bring upon Abraham what he has spoken about him. So we see there that that Yahweh is speaking to Abraham because Abraham will command his children and his household. Okay, the headship again being honored by God. In future Torah portions, we will demonstrate and defend the fact that with very rare exception, God gives the commandments to the men and expects them to teach and lead their household in righteousness. Egalitarians will find this offensive, but from Adam on, this is how God chooses to operate, establishing and upholding his structure for family and clan. So Genesis 18:22 and following uh, are the next passage we want to discuss. Then the men turned away from there and went towards Sodom while Avraham was still standing before Yahweh. Avraham came near and said, Will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there are 50 righteous within the city. Will you indeed sweep it away and not spare the place for the sake of the 50 righteous who are in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to slay the righteous with the wicked, so that the righteous and the wicked are treated alike. Far be it from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth deal justly? So Yahweh said, If I find in Sodom 50 righteous within the city, then I will spare the whole place on their account. And Abraham Avraham replied, Now behold, I have ventured to speak to Yahweh, although I am but dust and ashes. Suppose the 50 righteous are lacking five. Will you destroy the whole city because of five? And he said, I will not destroy it if I find 45 there. He spoke to him yet again and said, Suppose 40 are found there. And he said, I will not do it on account of the 40. Then he said, Oh, may Yahweh not be angry, and I shall speak. Suppose 30 are found there. And he said, I will not do it if I find 30 there. And he said, now behold, I have ventured to speak to Yahweh. Suppose 20 are found there. And he said, I will not destroy it on account of the 20. Then he said, oh, may Yahweh not be angry and I shall speak only this once. Suppose 10 are found there. And he said, I will not destroy it on account of the 10. And as soon as he had finished speaking to Avraham, Yahweh departed and Avraham returned to his place. Avraham's intercession and tenacity before Elohim on behalf of Lot's family in Sodom is breathtaking. Men, do we understand the power and authority with which we can respectfully step into the gap for our families? Avraham is exhibiting some of the amazing traits of a true patriarch. He risks his own life for Lot, who he surely knew was not doing all he was supposed to be doing. We can and should call to our Elohim's remembrance the promises that he made for my name's sake. I'll put that in quotes. Avraham is respectful, yet very forward in dealing or negotiating with Elohim. We should be so bold on behalf of our wives and children. It's a testimony to Abraham's faith and action that Yah speaks directly to him and even tells him his plans. Selah. Think about that. Avraham's faith and action, his leadership and priestly role, his exceptional respect in Canaan is juxtaposed by Lot. Notice that Lot does not even have enough respect and authority to convince his own sons-in-law to get out of Sodom. 
It does appear that he is keeping Pesach, and this is clearly a Pesach story of salvation, but his witness is so tarnished that his own family does not obey him, and the results are disastrous. Read Genesis 19 from the perspective that Lot is the head of his house and has been responsible for training them in righteousness and obedience. He had a decade or two of watching Avraham before parting ways. How much of Avraham has rubbed off on him? It does not appear that very much did. His choice of an easier life in the city allowed his family to be inculcated with the ways of Saddam. And when it all hits the fan, Lot escapes with only his two daughters, who then make bad choices right away. Instead of repenting and seeking Yah, they think only of of themselves and producing progeny resulting in the Moabites and the Ammonites. As a leader of home, we see that, that Lot is a pretty spectacular failure. We will not expound on the multiple lessons, but here are a few points to ponder. Avraham did everything he could to intercede on Lot's behalf, while Lot was willing to sacrifice his daughters seemingly without blinking an eye. You recall that he offered his daughters to the uh, rabid crowd outside of his home the night before Sodom was destroyed. Lot's sons-in-law had little to no respect for Lot, leading them to disregard his warning. They chose to stay behind, and the result was destruction. Lot had no sense of urgency. The angels had to take him by the hand to make him go. Come on, dude, let's go. Lot debated the instructions from the angels negotiating for a small town instead of the clear safety of the mountains. You recall that uh, they told him to go to the mountain, run to the mountains, and uh, he said it's too far and asked if he could go to Zoar instead, and that's where he went, um, I, I guess short term, but then later we find them in the mountains. The CJB, the Complete Jewish Bible, says that Lot dallied quote, unquote, so that the messengers had to literally take him, his wife, and daughters by the hand and lead them away from the city in order to spare them. In Genesis 20, a second incident of Sarah being taken into a king's house, or a a second incident of Sarah being taken into the king's house due to the understanding that she was Abraham's sister. Let's note a few interesting details. Genesis 20, starting at verse 2. Avraham said to Sarah, his wife, She is my sister. So Avimelech, king of Gerar, sent and took Sarah. But God came to Avimelech in a dream of the night and said to him, Behold, you are a dead man because of the woman whom you have taken, for she is married. Now Avimelech had not come near her, and he said, Lord, will you slay a nation even though blameless? Did he not himself say to me, she is my sister? And she herself said, he is my brother. In the integrity of my heart and the innocence of my hands, I have done this. Then God said to him in the dream, yes, I know that in the integrity of your heart, you have done this. And I also kept you from sinning against me. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. Now, therefore, restore the man's wife, for he is a prophet and he will pray for you and you will live. But if you do not restore her, know that you shall surely die, you and all who are yours. First, 
And this is partly in jest. Ladies, can you imagine being 89 years old and everywhere you go, some man wants you in his family? This Pharaoh and Abimelech, these are kings. They have options. And yet here they see Sarah at uh, in, in her uh, 70s and 80s and uh, saying, wow. Uh, no doubt she must have been beautiful, but we can confidently surmise that one of her strong traits lending to her beauty was her submission to Avraham. And just a side note, ladies, submission is a beautiful thing. There's no question. 1 Peter 3, 1 through 6 affirms that this is the very trait with which women of old adorned themselves. 1 Peter 3, in the same way, you wives, be submissive to your own husbands, so that even if any of them are disobedient to the word, they may be won without a word by the behavior of their wives as they observe your chaste and respectful behavior. Your adornment must not be external, braiding the hair, wearing gold jewelry, or putting on dresses, but let it be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable qualities of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is precious in the sight of God. For in this way, in former times, the holy women also who hoped for God used to adorn themselves, being submissive to their own husbands, just as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, and you have become her children if you do what is right without being frightened by any fear. There's something incredibly feminine and alluring in a woman who walks in submission and with a gentle spirit toward her husband. In like manner, there is something very masculine and handsome in a man that is leading and being the patriarchal head that reflects Messiah. The world can scoff and discount these things, but according to the word of God, these are the elements of high praise for men and women who will walk according to his plan. Notice that Peter seems to imply in verse 6 that Sarah was not frightened by the difficult situations she went through or was put through. Clearly, Sarah is one for the ladies to emulate. <clears throat> Another very interesting note in the Genesis 20 passage is God stating to Avimelech, I know that in the integrity of your heart you have done this, particularly when we realize that Avimelech had a wife, at least one. Genesis 20, verse 17, Avraham prayed to God and God healed Avimelech and his wife and his woman and his maids so that they bore children. For Yahweh had closed fast all the wombs of the household of Avimelech because of Sarah, Avraham's wife. If we back up to Genesis 20, verses 11 and 12, we read, Avraham said, because I thought surely there's no fear of God in this place and they will kill me because of my wife, because she actually is my sister, the daughter of my father, but not the daughter of my mother. And she became my wife. <clears throat> in a footnote concerning verse uh, concerning Genesis 20, 12, Rabbi Yermiah ben Avron, uh, Avrom, a, uh, a Messianic rabbi says, the sages say that in that area, it was considered allowable to marry one's sister if she was from one of their father's other wives, but it was not proper to marry one's sister if she was from the same mother. Hence, Avraham repeats this point in, the, uh, in these situations, clarifying that she is the acceptable kind of wife-sister that is from the father's other wife. Later on, we will address Leviticus 18, wherein marrying, uh, you're not allowed to marry your sister 
and then the uh, daughter of a, uh, a father's second wife or third wife or whatever is not acceptable if she is the daughter of the father. So it's possible, and I, you know, I'm just speculating here, but it's possible that maybe the um, uh, point. I, I guess the passage does say that she's the daughter of my father, but not of my mother. <clears throat> okay. So she was maybe a half-sister, something like that. The commonality between these, these two passages, as well as previous mention of Abraham taking Hagar as his wife, is a matter that will be taken up in fullness later. We've already pointed out in Breshit, or the first, uh, first section that we did, that what God's Word says about marriage is not the same thing as, quote-unquote, traditional marriage that is taught in Christendom. Christendom doesn't teach, and this is a, a quick side note, Christendom does not teach biblical marriage. What they teach is traditional marriage, and you'll hear them defend traditional marriage. And uh, by the time we get finished with this study, you'll recognize that traditional marriage actually comes straight out of Greco-Roman law. It does not come from Scripture. It's justified with Scripture, or they try to justify parts of it with Scripture and hide what God actually says regarding marriage. But that's part of the purpose of this book, is to expose truth. What's, what's, what's family structure according to God's word, not what is family structure according to Western civilization's tradition? Continuing, we must allow scripture to define for us what marriage is and is not. For now, this is another clue to put in our basket. <clears throat> because again, I just point back to uh, Avimelech telling God and God acknowledging in the integrity of my heart. And God says, yes, I know that in the integrity of your heart, you've done this. And Avimelech already had a wife. So how is it that in the integrity of, a, of his heart, he could do that? And he's talking to Yahweh. And Yahweh says, yes, yes, you are right. In the integrity of your heart, you did this. But she belongs to another man. <clears throat> so the clash between Hagar and Sarah arises again in Genesis 21. As God promised, Isaac was born as their heir, uh, or as the heir through whom he would bring the son of promise. <clears throat> It has been about 17 years from the time Hagar conceived Ishmael and despised Sarah. We do not know much about the interaction between Sarah and Hagar in the meantime, but we can imagine that with an incredibly valuable estate on the line, Hagar continued to carry bitterness and was not obedient to the angel of the Lord's admonition to submit yourself to her, Sarah's, authority, uh, Genesis 16, 9. It is this refusal to walk under her mistress's authority that no doubt led to Ishmael having a bad or abusive attitude toward Isaac, 13 years his junior. Genesis 21, uh, verse 9 and following. Now Sarah saw the son of Hagar, the Egyptian, whom she had borne to Abraham, mocking. Therefore she said to Abraham, drive out this maid and her son, for the son of this maid shall not be an heir with my son, Yitzhak. Regarding these verses, the Schottenstein edition of the Interlinear Humash notes, uh, page 105, mocking or playing, making sport. This term expresses what Sarah saw that con convinced her that Ishmael could not remain in the household. Scripture uses that verb to denote three cardinal sins. Idolatry in Exodus 32, 6. Adultery, 
30, Exodus 39, 17, and murder, 2 Samuel 2, 14. Thus, Ishmael's behavior proved that he had become thoroughly corrupt and evil and had to be sent away. And that's according to Rashi. Rabbi Avram, who we have previously quoted, <clears throat> says that kesa may be intentional, may be an intended wordplay. I'm sorry, sahek may be an intentional wordplay on the name Yitzach, uh, varying rabbinical accounts place Ishmael as either making fun, jesting of Yitzach, or making fun of the fuss that's being made about him. Hence, Ishmael is in his mind, in his mind the heir, while others claim he outright abused Yitzhak. The significance to our study in family and headship is that Hagar and Ishmael were clearly not exhibiting the faith and grace of Abraham, and therefore he had to deal with it. Unless we are mistaken, it appears that Abraham did not divorce Hagar, but sent her away, thus acting righteously by supporting her and maintaining connection with Ishmael, even if he had been put out of the house. We do see Ishmael and Isaac together at Abraham's death in Genesis 25, 9. So I, I'm, I believe that some con uh, connection continued. <clears throat> and Abraham, an honorable man, did what he was supposed to do, and that was take care of um, Hagar and, and Ishmael. While this portion demonstrates headship, patriarchy, and family in a very broad sense with numerous related lessons woven in, it is the binding of Isaac in Genesis 22 that displays with greatest clarity Avraham's commitment to his head, Yahweh. Genesis 22. Now it came about after these things that God tested Avraham and said to him, Avraham, and he said, here am I. <clears throat> he said, take now your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I will tell you. So Avraham rose early in the morning and saddled his donkey and took two of his young men with him and Isaac his son, and he split wood for the burnt offering and rose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Avraham raised his eyes and saw the place from a distance. Avraham's obedience is immediate and unquestioning. Man errs when we look anywhere, when he looks anywhere, including to his woman instead of to Yah. This is not to say that the woman cannot offer wise counsel. However, it is to emphasize that at the end of the day, the man must be focused on his own head, Yahweh. Avraham demonstrates his commitment by not consulting on a most difficult matter with Sarah, nor does he show regret or fear to Isaac. Rather, they walk together for three days, and then Isaac, who is about 37 years old at this point, following his father's direction, climbs up on the altar and is bound. At 137 years of age, Avraham prepares to slay the dream child, and the child is in humble submission to his own father. May we all be given the grace to obey and to convey to our children the degree of faith necessary to walk as Avraham. Because most are very familiar with the binding of Isaac, we will not dwell here. Most Torah series go into great uh, lengths covering it, uh, then forget the last four verses of the chapter. 
Because it deals directly with patriarchy and what Scripture actually says regarding family structure, we point them out as another clue on our journey of understanding the heart of Yah. Genesis 22, 20. Now it came about after those these things that it was told Abraham, saying, Behold, Milcah also has borne children to your son uh, to your brother Nahor, Uz his firstborn, and Buz his brother, and Kemuel the father of Aram, and Chesed, and Hazor, and Pildash, and uh, Yid, Yidlap, and Bethuel. Bethuel became the father of Rivka. These eight Milcah bore to Nahor, Avraham's brother. His concubine, whose name was Roma, also bore Teba and Gaham and Tahash and Makah. These verses leave the portion <clears throat> giving hope and the father is prepared, that the father is preparing a godly bride for Itzhak from a particular lineage. Yet oddly, we're given the detail without any judgment that Nahor has a concubine named Rehumah in addition to his wife named Milcah. This is just another clue to file in our growing assemblage of details in the portions regarding family structure and marriage. Next week, we'll tackle this particular subject, so stay tuned. <clears throat> in the next portion, actually, we'll do that you know, as we continue reading here. Much of this portion is broad details regarding leadership and how Avraham, a superior example of godliness, exercised headship. Further, our mother Sarah is on display as a submissive wife that offers sage wisdom in places while not overstepping her role, displaying fear or in any way distrusting her head. May our men be as Avraham and our women as Sarah. Rakot. <clears throat> The next portion is Chaye Sarah, which means, and Sarah lived, and it's Genesis 23, 1 through 25, 18. This week's portion is a bit shorter than the previous couple, but it offers several great opportunities to dig into common Christian and cultural misunderstandings in three critical areas, all of which are important in the restoration of Kol Israel. Our portion begins with the phrase, now Sarah lived, and yet Chapter 23 is about the respectful treatment of Sarah by Abraham negotiating for the cave of Machpelah as a burial site. We'll not delve into the burial of Sarah, but it's important to note that Sarah indeed lives. She does so in two ways. The first is by faith through Messiah and the Olam Haba, the ever after. And the second is through her descendants, highlighted in a quote from Peter used in the Leklekha commentary. Because it so significantly connects to our overarching topic of headship and patriarchy, we need to read it again and <clears throat> we need to read it again and ponder the significant example and impact of one life righteously lived in submission to her head and to her Elohim, her God. First Peter three, in the same way, you wives be submissive to your own husbands, so that even if any of them are disobedient to the word, they may be won without a word by the behavior of their wives as they observe your chaste and respectful behavior. Your adornment must not be external, braiding the hair, wearing gold jewelry, or putting on dresses, but the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable qualities of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is precious in the sight of God. For in this way, in former times, the holy women also, who hoped in God, used to adorn themselves, being submissive to their own husbands, just as Sarah obeyed Abraham, 
calling him Lord, Adon. And you have become her children if you do what is right without being frightened by any fear. Sarah is presented here as a model woman worthy of emulation. Abraham demonstrated that no price was too high to own the cave of Machpelah as a burial site, and he honored Sarah in his purchase. Genesis 24. Now Abraham was old, advanced in age, and Yahweh had blessed Abraham in every way. Abraham said to his servant, the oldest of his household, who had charge of all that he owned, Please place your hand under my thigh, and I will make you swear by Yahweh the Elohim of heaven and the Elohim of earth, that you shall not take a woman for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites among whom I live, but you shall go to my country and to my relatives and to my, and take a woman for my son Isaac. The servant said to him, suppose the woman's not willing to follow me to this land. Should I take your son back to the land from where you came? Then Abraham said to him, beware that you do not take my son back there. Yahweh, the Elohim of heaven, who took me from my father's house and from the land of my birth and who spoke to me and who swore to me, saying to your descendants, I will give this land. He will send his angel before you and you will take a woman for my son from there. But if the woman is not willing to follow you, then you will be free from this, my oath. Only do not take my son back there. So the servant placed his hand under the thigh of Abraham, his master, and swore to him concerning this matter. Isaac is about 37 years old at this point. Sarah dies before Isaac is married. Sarah was 90 when she gave birth to him and 127 when she died. While the patriarchs did live longer, Scripture pretty consistently demonstrates that men did not look for a bride too soon. Generally speaking, a man uh, was not ready to take a bride until he was well-established and financially secure. <clears throat> Scripture gives no direct command on the matter that I am familiar with. However, the underlying culture points over and over to a man focusing on becoming a man and becoming well-established both spiritually and financially before shouldering the honorable responsibility of being a Baal, a husband or master <clears throat> of a woman. Isaac is a fine example of this very point and waited patiently for his father, Avraham, to determine the right time to secure a bride. Avraham is intentional in choosing the stock from which Isaac's wife is to come. She is decidedly not to be from the daughters of the Canaanite, but was to be from the relatives of Avraham's country. Of additional significance, Avraham does not send Isaac to ensure uh, there was no temp, uh, temptation to loiter or stay. Rather, he sends an unnamed servant, presumably Eliezer. Notice that there is no dating or courting. In fact, none of the enculturated ideas of love are there. Rather, the bride is to be chosen based on who the servant selects under the guidance of the Ruach, the spirit. To be clear, I'm not necessarily advocating this as a method of finding a bride, but I do think we would be very wise to weigh carefully the fruit of modern day serial dating and breakups, as well as the excessive time alone that young folks spend together before marriage. If that isn't a hormone-laden cocktail waiting to explode, but I digress. <clears throat> Sounds like my phone is interjecting an emphasis there. 
Rivers of ink have been spilled, spiritualizing the roles of each of the characters, Avraham, Yitzhak, the servant, Rivka. In this chapter, <clears throat> as well as dissecting everything said in every... Uh, uh, Rivers of ink have been spilled, spiritualizing the roles of each of the characters in this chapter, Avraham, Yitzhak, the servant, Rivka, as well as dissecting everything said and every move made. Our thought process is a bit more practical as it relates to family structure, headship, and Rivka's character. The original mandate God gave to uh, Adam and Chava was to be fruitful and multiply. They were also told to till the earth. The first obviously requires a man and a woman. The second clearly requires laborers. Therefore, sons and daughters are needed in abundance, and each has a particular value. Sons as laborers and seed to build the family house, think house of Jacob, um, and daughters for working in the home and bearing children. As such, Abraham's servant sets out to acquire a woman that will fulfill this calling alongside Isaac, her future master. She must have been a sturdy woman and not a very young girl as is often pictured. She offers water to the servant and then waters his 10 camels to the full. This would have meant drawing and carrying between 300 and 500 gallons or maybe somewhere between 1,200 and 2,000 liters of water which would have been no small task. So Genesis 24, let's look at verses 10 and following. The servant took 10 camels from the camels of his master and set out with a variety of good things of his, master, uh, of his masters in his hand. And he arose and went to Mesopotamia to the city of Nahor. He made the camels kneel down outside the city by the well of water at evening time, the time when women go out to draw water. He said, O Yahweh, the Elohim of my master Avraham, please grant me success today and show loving kindness to my master Avraham. Behold, I am standing by the spring and the daughters of the men of the city are coming out to draw water. Now may it be that the girl to whom I say, please let down your jar so that I may drink and who answers drink and I will water your camels also. May she be the one whom you have appointed for your servant Isaac. And by this I will know. <clears throat> Before he had finished speaking, behold, Rivka, who was born to Bethuel, the son of Milcah, the wife of Avraham's brother Nahor, came out with her jar on her shoulder. The girl was very beautiful, a virgin, and no man had had relations with her. And she went down to the spring and filled her jar and came up. Then the servant ran to meet her and said, please, let me drink a little water from your jar. She said, drink, my lord. And she quickly lowered her jar to her hand and gave him a drink. Now, when she had finished giving him a drink, she said, I will also draw for your camels until they have finished drinking. So she quickly emptied her jar into the trough and ran back to the well to draw. And she drew for all his camels. Meanwhile, the man was gazing at her in silence to know whether Yahweh had made his journey successful or not. <clears throat> the servant, upon witnessing the character and performance of Rebekah, in answer to his prayer, proceeds to place a nose ring and bracelets on her and asks for lodging. In the process of lodging in Bethuel's house, the servant is able to confirm their faith in Yahweh and recount the blessings of, of the Lord in leading him to Rebekah or Rivka. After the servant had related his story, he concludes with a closing statement and request to which the men of Rivka's life or the men in Rivka's life respond. 
Genesis 24, 49. So now, if you are going to deal kindly and truly with my master, tell me, and if not, let me know that I may turn to the right hand or to the left. Then Lavan and Bethuel replied, The matter comes from Yahweh, so we cannot speak to you good or bad. Here is Rivka before you. Take her and go and let her be the woman of your master's son or the wife of your master's son as Yahweh has spoken. It's interesting to note that Rivka appears to have had no say in the matter. She is consulted regarding the timing of her departure, a matter she chooses not to delay. Genesis 24, 56 and following. He said to them, Do not delay me, since Yahweh has prospered my way. Send me away that I may go to my master. And they said, We will call the girl and consult her wishes. Then they called Rivka and, she, and said to her, Will you go with this man? And she said, I will go. Thus they sent away their sister Rivka and her nurse with Avraham's servant and his men. They blessed Rivka and said to her, May you, our sister, become, the th- become thousands of ten thousands, and may your descendants possess the gates of those who hate them. Then Rivka arose with her maids, and they mounted the camels and followed the man. So the servant took Rivka and departed. <clears throat> A common fallacy regarding patriarchal life and biblical headship is that the woman has no voice. Such is patently false. She has a voice. But as we have seen reiterated over and over, it must be in submission to the will of her authority or the headship of the authority over her. What is often not accounted for is that the authority, if operating as Scripture instructs in Messiah's example, will act in love and hear, even if not necessarily agree with, the woman. Rivka's asked for her opinion regarding when to depart, and she agrees to go immediately with no implied reluctance. We don't really recognize that the, that the travel time between the city of Nahor and the Negev in Israel is about a month or more by camel. The servant and company could move quickly, but it was still quite a long journey each way. The servant did not uh, waste time at Bethuel's. He accomplished his mission and promptly returned to his master, Avraham, in the Negev. Genesis 24, 62 and following. Now, Isaac had come from going to Beer Lahai Roy, for he was living in the Negev. Isaac went out to meditate in the field toward evening, and he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, camels were coming. Rivka lifted up her eyes, and when she saw Isaac, she dismounted from the camel. I think the passage actually says she fell off of her camel, or she lit off is awfully... Um, uh, awfully gracious for <laughs> the text says that she dismounted. Um, uh, so Rivka lifted up her eyes, and when she saw Isaac, she dismounted from the camel. She said to the servant, Who is that man walking in the field to meet us? And the servant said, He is my master. Then she took her veil and covered herself. The servant told Isaac all the things that he had done. Then Isaac brought her into his mother Sarah's tent, and he took Rivka and she became his woman, and he loved her. Thus, Isaac was comforted after his mother's death. This section should immediately make us stop and think. Where's the marriage license? Where's the rabbi or the pastor or the priest? How about the witnesses? And the big expensive wedding? Oh my. Now that's right. None of that is either present or necessary. We should refer to the first marriage in the garden for confirmation. If you go back to Genesis Uh, And I put marriage in quotes because technically scripture doesn't ever say anything about 
marriage. Um, in, in, in the Tanakh, it's just that the man takes the woman, which is a euphemism for possessing her. Um, so Genesis 2.24, For this reason a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. There are dozens of items that need to be discussed and pondered concerning headship, patriarchy, the roles of men and women, as well as the process of finding a wife. As the editorial team for this portion, I, and I had multiple people that were helping me um, with background information and discussing, bouncing ideas off of them, um, we realized we do not have a definitive answer for all of these things, but there are many questions that need to be placed on the table for the larger community to chew on. If we are about the restoration of Kol Israel, will it look very Greco-Roman or Western? Or if our family structures are being brought more into alignment with the Torah, how does that affect the process of finding and securing a bride? <clears throat> Culturally speaking, there is a lot wrong with how we do, quote unquote, dating courtship marriage today. Rather than solutions, let us ask more questions that hopefully spur conversations within the Torah community at large. And so we will start small. Here are some questions. How can we transition to a more biblical approach to courtship? especially with our currently marriageable children who have been somewhat exposed to the Western ways. How do we move in the direction of downscaling the wedding ceremony and rethinking popular vows? What vows are biblical and what are not? Some weddings in the Torah community are looking very Jewish. Is this a good thing? Is it okay as long as we don't go down that money trail? Should we bring back the idea of some sort of a bride price? Why or why not? If so, what is a base valuation? What increases or diminishes a bride's price? Will a parent, particularly a father, guard his daughter much more closely to prevent some young knucklehead from reducing her value, aka taking away her virginity? Will a bride price much more strongly encourage young men to be industrious and frugal as they prepare for a future family? What do we think of marriage licenses? Are they necessary? Some deeper level questions related to the, to the previously mentioned questions that are worth considering. If a young man devalues a young lady, how will the community handle this? Is this where communities establish judges to adjudicate Torah law? How does our understanding of acquiring a wife relate to divorcees and widows? A subject to be covered in future portions. How do these things alter our understanding of the purpose of marriage? And how does valuing a young lady increase her self-worth and worth to her husband if she has been properly reared and trained as a bride. What attitudes, characteristics, and skill sets increase or decrease her value? Some may find these questions in line of thought offensive, but do we really think we will take a Greco-Roman egalitarian mindset into the kingdom? Many, many more subjects and connections spin off of these foundational topics regarding family and community life. 
We should all be pondering and weighing these as we proceed through the portions. Here's another topic that's a major bite to chew on. <clears throat> Genesis 25, verse 5. Now, Abraham gave all that he had to Esau, verse 6. But to the sons of his concubines, Abraham gave gifts while he was still living and sent them away from his son Esau eastward to the land to the east. <clears throat> Most read these verses and the content does not even uh, register except that it's underlined. And, and the fact that I underlined the sons of his concubines. Maybe it's denial. Maybe the line is so short that it's simply lost in the flow. Nevertheless, we must slow down and ponder again this clue right in scripture as to what God regards concerning family structure and patriarch. Simply and clearly, scripture tells us that in addition to Sarah, Abraham had concubines, plural. We are not told how many, simply that to prevent any drama or competition with Isaac or Isaac for the inheritance, he gives gifts, no doubt very generous, to the sons and sends them away. The concubines are not sent away as they are mastered by or married to Abraham. They belong to him and have a one flesh relationship with him. Therefore, he has a covenantal responsibility for them as their head, but he sends the sons away. Doesn't send the daughters away, sends the sons away. Because the topic's introduced here, we need to take a minute and consider the basics of what a concubine is and is not. As we continue our journey through the Torah, we will glean more details and a bit more information, but a general working understanding is important as we move forward. <clears throat> First, what a concubine is not. She is not a woman who is purchased for personal pleasure. Western culture and Christendom have wrongfully denigrated the role and place of a concubine as a sex servant or a permanent prostitute. And frankly, it's utterly abhorrent mischaracterization of what a concubine was or is. And by wrongly defining concubine, we judge Abraham, Gideon, and David, among many other righteous men with a standard Scripture never exhibits. What a concubine is. Scripture is notoriously vague on the parameters of concubinage, and culturally the role and use of this status may have changed slightly in the 2,000 years of recorded history in the Tanakh. Following are several generally accepted points. A concubine was owned by her master. The relationship with her master was not necessarily consummated, though if that occurred, she belonged exclusively to him. A concubine could earn and be given the status of a wife if she was willing to walk in full submission to her husband. <clears throat> Unlike a free woman who generally required a bride price, a concubine could be purchased, received as a gift, or she could choose to place herself under the headship of a man willing to lead her. A concubine had some freedom and rights that allowed her departure, freedoms not afforded to a freeborn bride that had been mastered, uh, i.e. concubines were not in full submission and in some ways may even have been at least partly self-supporting. <clears throat> a concubine was a valuable and valued addition to her master's house because she brought skills, talents, and abilities to aid in productivity and wealth generation of the family enterprise as well as her potential for producing additional sons and daughters, a.k.a. labor in the family enterprise. 
One amazing distinction that the concubine discussion reveals is that if Abraham, Jacob, or Moses were to look at Western culture today, they would define most married women as concubines and not as wives because of the independent, cavalier, and even openly insubordinate attitudes toward husbands coupled with the freedom to walk out the door and take half of the man's assets with her. For husbands and wives who chafe at this statement, we challenge you by holding up the biblical pattern and asking a few questions. Ephesians chapter 5. Wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Messiah also is the head of the Kahal, Ecclesia, church. He himself being the savior of the body, but as the church is subject to Messiah. So also, wives ought to be to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, just as Messiah also loved the assembly, or the call, the church, and gave himself up for her, so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. So husbands ought to love their own wives or women as their own bodies. He who loves his own woman loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Messiah also does the kahal, the assembly. Because we are members of his body, for this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and shall be joined to his woman, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is great, but I am speaking with reference to Messiah and the Kahal, the the Ecclesia. Nevertheless, each individual among us also is to love his own wife even as himself, and the wife must see to it that she reverences, or the Greek word there is fears, her husband, in a healthy manner. Messiah is to be a picture of the church, the Kahal, in complete and total submission to Uh, I'm sorry, marriage is to be a picture of the church, the kahal, in complete and total submission to the Messiah. Does the church have the right or authority to overrule, disagree, disobey, or in any way disregard the headship and even the ownership of the Messiah? Is the kahal, the church, allowed to negotiate with, talk back to, give the silent treatment to, or scowl at Yeshua, when we take the pattern, the correct model of a perfected church as the bride of Messiah and apply it to the roles of husband and wife, we very quickly see the gross impropriety of the egalitarian Roman or Greco-Romanism we import into Kol Israel. Suddenly in the above context, the concubine nature of the average Western wife is exposed. Without question, this portion offers fodder for some very serious discussion regarding the biblical meaning of securing a bride. Study of the status and role of a concubine, modern relevance in a Torah community of bride price and selection, concubinage, submission, and restoration of biblical headship. Many of these questions and discussions continue for weeks, or may these questions and and discussion continue for weeks to come, and share some thoughts. we would ask as you share some thoughts on my blog. Um, we begin this portion with, and Sarah lived. Peter tells us how she lived. in, or, or is she, her heart of submission, alive 
and you ladies toward your husbands. Men is her spirit of submission alive in you toward the Messiah. Ladies, if you're looking for an Abraham, then you must be a Sarah. And men, if you desire a Sarah or Rebecca, you must walk as Abraham. Shalom.